we're looking at today. Um, I did wonder whether um, going forward we should give you a, a basketball and, and we, we label it, say, like 10.35. And at 10.35, if I'm not finished, you could start going for the baskets. It would be an encouragement to finish, but um, I did decide against that for my own self-preservation. Um, as Tiff said, we are just systematically working through Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, so chapter 5 through to chapter 7. And the passage we're at today is one of those passages where you probably need to put your seats in the upright position and fasten your safety belts. It's one of those passages uh, that you have to wrestle with if you're going to properly understand uh, not just the sermon and what's going to follow, but actually the whole of the Old Testament. So it's one of those theological passages that, that will stretch what you think about and what you do with the Old Testament scriptures. And so we are going to try and chew it a little bit this morning and just think about that. And we're going to ask God to help us as we come to it. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word and we do thank you for the great privilege that is ours of being able to come to it and to wrestle with it and to study it and to chew it. But we thank you most of all for the promise in your scriptures that by your spirit you will speak to us through it. And so, Lord, that's what we ask for, for today. We ask that your Spirit would move among us. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would open our hearts and our minds, that we will be receptive to your voice. And so, Lord, open our eyes that we might see Jesus afresh today, in whose name we ask this. Amen. I wonder if you've noticed that the society in which you and I live in has largely become a throwaway society. Uh, have you picked that up? you know what I mean when I say a throwaway society? Uh, if something's broken, gone are the days where dad knows how to take it apart and fix it. Uh, and so if it's broken today, we, we don't even try to fix it, we replace it. Uh, if it's broken, we put it out on the verge, or we take it to the dump, or we get the recyclers to come and take it from us. Uh, if truth be told, it doesn't always have to actually be broken. Uh, sometimes it can just be outdated. It can be old technology. It can be old school. And so we toss it. We get rid of it. Now here's the thing that scares me quite a lot. The thing that scares me is I think certain Christians, nominal Christians, actually do exactly the same with the Bible. It's how a lot of people treat the Bible. We discard parts of it as outdated. We reject sections as irrelevant. And so for many people, they will ignore the Old Testament because they're not Jewish. And so they discard it. And when it comes to the New Testament, what they will do is they will pick the parts that they're comfortable with. They'll pick the parts that are easy for them or that are acceptable to them. And so one of the questions I want us to wrestle with this morning is whether Jesus does that. Does Jesus do that? Does he discard the old does he toss the old? Does he say it's past its sell-by date and it deserves to go on the rubbish dump? Uh, does Jesus cancel the Old Testament regulations and rules as irrelevant to us today? In other words, what does he say the Jews should do with their heritage and their scriptures? Should they discard them in the name of progress? Uh, frankly, some people might think that is the case until Jesus actually corrects them 
in these verses that we're looking at this morning. So if you've got Matthew 5 open in front of you, will you notice two simple but very important truths about Jesus' view of the Old Testament? The first thing I want us to notice, and you see it in verse 17, is that Jesus has not come to abolish the old, but to accomplish it. Not to abolish it, but to accomplish it. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Just so you know, the law and the prophets is shorthand. It's a way of speaking about the Old Testament scriptures. So what we know is Genesis to Malachi would often be described as the law and the prophets. Sometimes the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And when Jesus thinks about that body of literature, those Old Testament scriptures, he says he hasn't come to dismiss it. He hasn't come to discard it, and he hasn't come to reject it. In fact, on the contrary, if you look very carefully, look at verse 18, uh, it tells us Jesus has got an extremely high regard for the Old Testament. Uh, Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will disappear until everything is accomplished. And so we need to say this morning that Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament, but he did come to accomplish it. In other words, he came to do what the law and prophets were always ultimately intended to do. Uh, That's why in verse 17 he says he came to fulfill them. He is the fulfillment of all that came before him. A new age is dawning. It is. Uh, It's dawning though not because the old is being abolished, but because it's reaching fulfillment. Just think about it, and and, and forgive me if this is a little bit technical just to start with, uh, but I want you to understand this so that we'll make sense of the rest of the sermon in the chapters to come. See, think about the Old Testament law. Uh, Why was it given to God's people? Well, very simply, it was given to show them how, it's why we had the video earlier on, to show them how to love God and to love people. How to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how to love their neighbor as themselves. In other words, how to live the way God wants them to live. To live holy lives as God is holy. But sadly, when they got the law, it revealed instead their failure. See, when the law is a measure, it shows that they fail to love God. They fail to love their neighbors. They fail to live as God wants them to live. And so what the law did ultimately in revealing their sin and their failure was it highlighted for them they desperately need a savior. They need someone who will come and save them from their sin, who will restore them in their brokenness. Think about the prophets for a moment. The prophets came as the covenant watchdogs. They were the ones who entrusted with the task of calling Israel to live faithfully as God's covenant people. But again, It was the prophets that exposed them as covenant breakers. It was the the prophets who exposed them as being unfaithful and disobedient. It's the prophets who exposed them as deserving judgment. In other words, just like the law before, the prophets came and in exposing their true state, point to the fact they're in trouble and they need salvation. They're in trouble and they need a savior. A savior. And so ultimately, the law and the prophets point us to one who will save Israel, who will show Israel what it is to live the way God wants them to be. And come to Matthew 5, and in Matthew 5, Jesus says, that's me. That's me, he says. 
I'm the one they point to. I'm the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. If you want to keep the Old Testament, you come to Jesus. Come to me, he says to us. You see, Jesus is the law and the prophets fulfilled. He's the one who takes them to their logical and intended conclusion. And so when you read the Old Testament properly, it should always bring you to the foot of the cross. It should always bring you to the person and work of Jesus because ultimately it's all about him. And Jesus says that in Luke's gospel as well. At the end of Luke's gospel, he says this in Luke 24 verse 44. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of the the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, when we read the New Testament, when we read the Gospels, they understand the Old Testament to point to Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't discard it. He doesn't abolish it. He fulfills it. What they anticipated, he has accomplished As one writer says, he's not announcing the termination of the Old Testament's relevance or authority, but saying that its continuity is established only with reference to Jesus. Of course, it's at this moment you're all sitting there going, that's a bit rough for a Sunday morning. What does that mean for us, Luke? I mean, it's all good and well when you start talking accomplished and fulfilled and, and, and the logical conclusion and Jesus is the guy. What does that mean for us? Well, at a very simple level, here's what it means for you. Don't ditch the Old Testament. Don't ditch the Old Testament. I know what you do, because you do what I do. You start your annual reading program, don't you? And you get through Genesis, and it's very exciting. In Exodus, it gets a bit, it's exciting, because there's like miracles and stuff. Genesis, Exodus, and then you get Leviticus. And you hit Leviticus and you say, Oy vey, Phew, skip a few chapters. Of course, the problem when you skip Leviticus a few chapters is you land up in the book of Numbers. Ish. Ish. And then you think, I'm just going to do the New Testament this year. See, that's what we do, don't we? We, we, we get to a stage in our Christian walk where we, where we say, Hey, the Old Testament's not for me. I'm a Christian. I'm in Jesus. The only problem is Jesus says not the least will disappear of the Old Testament. In fact, look at verse 19. He says, anyone who sets them aside will be held accountable. See, Jesus upholds the authority and the significance of the Old Testament right down to the least stroke of a pen. And so let me say something that will try to shock you this morning if you haven't thought about this before. The Old Testament is not Jewish. The Old Testament is Christian. It's Christian. Because it was written to bring you to Christ. It is for Christians. It is for his church today. It is for you and me. We cannot be just New Testament Christians. We'll never fully understand the New Testament until we understand what it fulfills and accomplishes in the Old Testament. Of course, as Douglas alluded to, we'll never actually get the second part if we don't get the first part. See, it's only we'll appreciate the Old Testament in light of the New Testament and we'll understand the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. And so we don't relegate the Old Testament to Sunday school as if the children must learn it, but we as adults don't need to. It's why when you look at our teaching program for the year, you'll see we include significant sections of the Old Testament because we're convinced it is God's word to us and for us. 
We're convinced it's as we read the Old Testament that it will reveal to us who God is and what God is like. It'll paint a picture for us of just how majestic and wonderful God is. It'll teach us about His character, which will shape our worship. It'll instruct us in our conduct, which will shape our holiness. And as Paul rightly says in 2 Timothy, it will ultimately make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm not wanting to pick on you now, but if the cap fits, sorry. Get rid of your New Testament and Psalms. Buy the whole Bible. And I know what you're saying, oh, it's easier to carry. Well, in fact, nobody carries their Bible around now. They just put it in their pocket. Uh, but for those days, you remember those days when you get the New Testament and Psalms? No, get rid of that and buy the Bible. The whole Bible. And when you buy the whole Bible, can I say to you, will you read the Old Testament? Will you rediscover God's word to you in the Old Testament scriptures? And so as you sit here as God's people today, don't discard the old. If Jesus didn't, you can't. Uh, but not only must you not discard it, you must read it. And you must understand it. And you must apply it. But you must do all that through Jesus. Uh, so you never take the Old Testament straight to you. You never take a chunk of the Old Testament and apply it as a promise or a truth for you. You see, Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament. And when we read it, we must read it in light of him. I'm, I don't know if you've noticed. I, I've got these clear ones because I'm hoping you wouldn't really notice them. Uh, but I'm at the age now where the font is too small. Do any of you suffer from that? I'm not sure if it's the font is too small or my arms are too short. Right? I, I, which means if I'm going to go somewhere, I have to have a pair of these things in my pocket or in my car or in my bag. Uh, otherwise, I shine the light. I go to a restaurant now and I shine the light because I, uh, the light in here is terrible. And I put the light on and... Now here's the thing, when we come to the Old Testament, it won't really be in focus. It won't really be in vision. In other words, we, we won't get what it's actually saying until we put our lens on, until we put our glasses on. And the glasses we want to put on to make sense of the Old Testament is Jesus. Is Jesus. How does Jesus fulfill this section? How does Jesus accomplish this promise? How does Jesus fulfill this promise or this law or this prophecy? Because as Craig Blomberg says, the, the Old Testament remains normative and it remains relevant for Christ followers. But it can't be rightly understood until one understands how it is fulfilled in and through Jesus. And so before you go to the Old Testament and say, well, the promises to Abraham are for me, no, the promises for Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus. And if you want to know how to fulfill the promises of Abraham, go to Jesus first. And here's the thing, when you go to Jesus, you'll discover that some of the Old Testament promises and prophecies and truths find their end in Jesus. Some of them are tweaked by Jesus, and some of them remain unchanged. Let me try and give you an example. Leviticus 16 says that God's people should sacrifice a Passover lamb every year at the annual Passover festival. Can I ask you, when last did you sacrifice a Passover lamb? And I'm not talking about the lamb spit you might have had recently. Uh, when last have you sacrificed a Passover lamb for your sins and for your family's sins? See, we don't do that, do we? And the good news is we don't have to because that, that pr pr 
that law, sacrifice of Passover lamb, is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the once for all sacrifice who takes away the sins of the whole world. So, so, so I, don't, I don't have to apply Leviticus 16 by killing a lamb. Here's what I have to do. I have to apply Leviticus 16 every day, not just annually, by coming to Jesus as the one who forgives me for my sins, as the one who pays for my sins, as the one who dies on a cross for me. If you come to our men's breakfast, one of the things you will know is that I like bacon. Bacon makes everything better. I was, I, had a, I was at a conference this weekend. I was petrified. I went out. The label said couscous salad. <laughs> it was not a good sign. Even though there was a cookie next to it, couscous salad for lunch. When you're a bloke my size, you don't dream of couscous salad at night, let me tell you. But don't fear, as I opened the lid, there was bacon. And bacon makes everything better. And so I ate my bacon. And just so you know, I love sweet and sour pork. I, I, I can't get enough of it. I, I, it's fabulous. Why do I do that when the Old Testament says don't eat bacon? And don't eat pork. And don't eat crayfish. I, one of our luxuries today. Well, I do that because in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes from your heart. And Mark chapter 7 says to us, in saying this, Jesus declared all food clean. See, I, I can eat bacon because Jesus is the one who transforms my heart. How, how do you keep the Sabbath today? When, when I was a child growing up, yes, I, boys and girls, I was a child growing up once upon a time. Uh, Sundays... Uh, I, in fact, some of you will remember when there were no shops open on a Sunday. I remember, I lived in this area, and so I remember when Park and Shop, if you did not get there by 1 o'clock on a Saturday, you got nothing for the weekend. Sunday was the Sabbath. You couldn't even mow your lawn, and heaven forbid if you tried to tell your father you were going to go and play tennis on a Sunday. If you got sorted out big time. I wonder how many of you go to the shops on a Sunday today. One of my favorite stories is um, I was the pastor of Takai Community Church and uh, we lived in Bergfield, worked in Takai. And so quite often on a Sunday, I would say to Nick's, uh, I'll stop and pick up some rolls or something for lunch on the way home. I went into the pick and pay, you know the pick and pay down at Takai Main Road there? I went in there one day and there was one of the elderly ladies from our congregation who got the fright of her life because the minister was going to catch her walking around the shops. She was incredibly embarrassed that now the minister has caught her shopping on the Sabbath. Of course, I thought it was a game, and the more she ran, the more I ran after her. <laughs> and I chased her all around the shops. And eventually, we met in the milk aisle. As she reached for her milk, I got mine, and I said in a big nice, Hi, how are you? It was incredible to see the dawning on her face when she worked out, she can't be in trouble for shopping on a Sunday, because the Dermen is here too. See, but why? why? Now, now, there's wisdom to not shop on a Sunday, just for the record, and we can talk about that another time. But why am I free to go shopping on a Sunday? Because I don't keep the Sabbath by doing or not doing stuff on Sundays. That's not the Sabbath to begin with, just for the record. Now, now I keep the Sabbath today when today I do not harden my heart. When today I come to Jesus, trusting in Him alone for my salvation. I find my rest today in the person and work of Jesus. And so when I am trusting Him, I am keeping the Sabbath. 
Now, yes, we must have time where we have physical rest too, and we can talk about that at community group. Of course, when I come to Jesus, I'll discover that I still am called to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. I will find when I come to Jesus, I am still told to love my neighbor as myself. You see, he fulfills it. That doesn't mean he discards it. It doesn't mean it's rejected. It doesn't mean it's out. And so as I read the Old Testament, I mustn't discard it. I mustn't moralize it. I must read it through Jesus. And when I read it through the lens of Jesus, here's what I will discover. It won't only make me wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It will equip me for every good work as his child. And so can I encourage you today to be people of the Bible, the whole Bible, even the book of Numbers. It's there for a reason. It's there to encourage you. It's there to edify you. It's there to equip you. Let's do the hard work of asking God how. See, Jesus doesn't abolish the Old Testament. We mustn't abolish the Old Testament. But as you come back to Matthew, did you notice not just that he didn't abolish it, did you notice that he also didn't lower its standards? Uh, Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the first point was not to abolish but to accomplish, and the second is this, not to lower but to lift. Not to lower but to lift. If we had to walk across to the Sunday school or to the teen church and say to them, what do they make of the Pharisees? I wonder, in fact, even if we had to ask you, what do you make of the Pharisees? Most of us would probably say something like, oh, the Pharisees, they're the baddies. Because that's, that's how we see them. That's how we understand them. The Pharisees oppose Jesus, and, and so they must be terrible people. Of course, the thing to bear in mind that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were the most religious in the community. They were the religious elite. They were the ones who didn't only know the Old Testament law, they were the ones who could recite it, and they were the ones who kept it. These were the ones who practiced righteousness. And as you looked at their outward righteousness, the truth is they were very, very impressive. And so verse 19 is a real shock when Jesus says, you're impressive, but not impressive enough. Enough. Uh, just think about this. Think about the person you think is the most spiritual and the most religious person you've ever met. Uh, think of their morality. Think of their godliness. Think of their knowledge of Scripture. Have you got that person in mind? Jesus says they're not good enough. They're not good enough. And the reason they aren't good enough in here in Matthew 5, the reason Jesus says the Pharisees aren't impressive enough is because they missed the point. See, they fundamentally missed the point. The law was always given to help God's people love God. Uh, to love God wholeheartedly, to love God with all their so heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love their neighbors rightly. We can go and read about that in Exodus. We can go and read about that in Deuteronomy. It was always a heart issue. 
It was always first and foremost about giving your heart to God. Loving Him wholeheartedly. The problem is, this group of Jews reduced it to rules and to regulations. They made it about external legalism. And the result was an empty religion. A heartless, outward orientated religion. And so the truth is, they had religion. They had religion in spades. They had rules and regulations in abundance, and they kept them. But they did not have righteousness in their hearts. See, remember what Douglas said? They might have loved people, but they didn't love God. And when you don't love God, the truth is you have nothing. Nothing. See, here's the thing. Outward, outward rules can't make you inwardly righteous. And not least because you don't keep them. And I don't keep them. And so if we try to be righteous according to our outward acts, well, you and I will always fail. We'll always get it wrong. And so what Jesus wants from us, as he wanted from Israel, is not empty rule-keeping, not legalism, not rules and regulations. No, what he wants is wholehearted love. What he wants is loyalty from us towards him. What he wants is inner righteousness, transformed hearts righteousness, changed lives righteousness. But quite frankly, even that's too much. Even that's too much because our, our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are selfish. And our hearts fail. And so when you read Jesus say what he wants is a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, here's the thing, even when you do the homework, you're going to realize, oy vey. Oy vey. I'm old enough that I did national service. And uh, we would be sent to run. That's how they did everything, you ran. And uh, sometimes they would use running as a punishment. And eventually you would get to the stage where you were falling over on the floor. And this was our cry. Kan meer koparal. Kan meer. See, it's only the people 50 and over who understand that story. Because they know exactly what I'm talking about. And you get to the stage where you're so helpless, you flop down and you say, huh? I can't. I can't. I want to suggest to you that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. You can't. You can't. But you don't have to. You don't have to. And the reason you don't have to is because He did. He did. And so we don't discard righteousness as the standard for Christians. We, we, we don't say it's unimportant and irrelevant. No, we are clear. Jesus expects us to be righteous. And in fact, he expects that our righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees. He wants us to be right with God. He understands that is the starting point. No, nothing he's going to say in the rest of the sermon will make sense. If you do not understand, it starts with righteousness. But he's clear that that righteousness can only happen through Jesus. It can only happen through Jesus. You will not be righteous on your own efforts. You will not be righteous by your outward acts. And you will not be righteous by your own heart. Now you will be righteous only when you come to Jesus and get a new heart. See, Jesus is the righteousness that God provides. 
Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who rightly loves God and fully obeys Him completely. Jesus is the true righteousness, and therefore He is the source of all righteousness. And so when I come to Him poor in spirit, Matthew 5 verse 3, When I come to him mournful of my sin, Matthew 5 verse 4. When I come hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that he gives, Matthew 5 verse 6. That's when I receive it. You see, when I come to faith in Christ, that's when I have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. John Stott helpfully says, he says, Christian righteousness surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind, not degree. It's not that we succeed in keeping the commands they fail to keep, but that it is deeper because it is a righteousness of the heart. See, the challenge for us today is to be righteous. The challenge today is to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. One that comes not from outward rules and regulations, not even religion. One that comes from inward righteousness. From a transformed heart. Because first and foremost, we love Jesus. And so can I say to you today, don't discard righteousness. I know there's a lot of people who think, uh, because we're under grace, righteousness is unimportant. Uh, Can I just say to you, that's not a helpful way of thinking and certainly not a biblical way of thinking. Grace is what brings us to righteousness. And we must be righteous. But we can only be righteous through Jesus. And so let me stop and just talk to some people today. It might be you. To just say it might be that you're thinking you're going to be righteous because you came to church today. It might be because you came to church on time. It might even be because you came to church on time and without your stiletto heels. You abided by all the rules. And so it might be that you you fooled yourself into thinking that I'm righteous because of what I'm doing. Can I just say to you that's not the case. Your righteousness comes only because you trust Jesus. And so can I just say to you today, if you think you're you're righteous because of what you are doing, can I bring you back to the law and the prophets? Can I bring you back to the Old Testament? Can I bring you back to the one they point to, the person of Jesus? And can I say to you that no matter how moral you are, how good you are, how nice you are, how kind you are, how generous you are, you are not righteous until you've trusted Jesus. Until you've bowed the knee to him as your king. And that might be you today. You might need to understand the starting point is humbling yourself and trusting him. My guess though is that for many of us here at the church, we'll say we've already done that. Uh, We've already repented of our sins. We've already had a new heart. Uh, We've already become righteous in and through Christ. Uh, then I want to say to you, well, well, don't discard righteousness, but do live rightly. Do live rightly. In, in other words, your righteousness inwardly must come outwardly and must be reflected in right living. See, the standard hasn't dropped. We are still to love God with our whole heart. We are still to love Jesus unconditionally. And that loyalty to Him is expressed according to Matthew 28 when we obey all that He has commanded.
And just so you know, if you come back next week and the week after, I will unpack this in a little more detail because I think that's what Jesus does in the sermon. He's going to show what it will look like for us who are righteous in Christ to live rightly outwardly. But here's the point. We don't, we don't live the way the world lives. And when your heart is different inwardly, your lifestyle should be different outwardly. And so we've got to learn what God wants of us. We've got to learn what will it look like when we love Him wholeheartedly. What will it look like in the way we treat each other? What will it look like in the way we speak to each other? You see, most of us, well, we, we want to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, come back next week because Jesus is going to say, but have you got angry? Have you got angry? Have you, have you slipped your tongue at all? Have you lost your rag? Especially when that taxi pulls in front of you. See, see righteousness, properly understood, is in Jesus. Properly applied is lived out in our daily life. How we think, how we speak, and how we act is the fruit of our righteousness. Dear friends, we follow a king, a king who calls us to follow him, a king who does not abolish the old but accomplishes it, a king who doesn't lower the standard but lifts it. And so the question is, will we follow him in the, what he does and what he says. Let's pray together.